Hey, Unchained listeners. As you know, it's hard keeping up with the fast-paced world of crypto, so we've got just the thing for you. Subscribe to our free Unchained daily newsletter at unchainedcrypto.substack.com. You'll get the latest crypto news and original articles from our reporters, as well as summaries of other happenings and bullet points, plus our meme of the day, all curated and written by our amazing team. It's still your no-hype resource for all things crypto, just in newsletter form. Sign up at unchainedcrypto.substack.com. Again, the URL is unchainedcrypto.substack.com. Not a dividend. It's a tale of two ponds. Now, your losses are on someone else's balance sheet. Generally speaking, airdrops are kind of pointless anyways. Um, I named trading firms who are very involved. Um, Alec.eth is the ultimate ponds. DeFi protocols are the antidote to this problem. Hello, everybody. Welcome to The Chopping Block. Every couple of weeks, the four of us get together and give the industry insider's perspective on the crypto topics of the day. So quick intros. First, we've got Tom, the DeFi maven and master of memes. Next, we've got Tarun, the GigaBrain and Grand Poobad Conlet. Today, we've got a special guest with us, Ilya, who is the founder of Nier. So I actually, for today, because we're going to be talking about AI, I got GPT-4 to write some intros for Ilya, and you tell me which one you like. First one is Ilya, the Nier Network's noble navigator. Ilya, the brilliant blockchain builder behind Nier. Introducing Ilya, Nier Protocol's pioneering pilot. Uh, Ilya, the founder and fearless frontiersman of Nier. That one doesn't rhyme with Nier, but that's fine. Uh, and then Ilya, the Nier Protocol pioneer with a visionary vibe. Uh, <laughs> welcome to the show, Ilya. Uh, ChatGPT welcomes you. you as well. And then you've got myself. I'm Haseeb, the head hype man of Dragonfly. So uh, we are early stage investors in crypto, but I want to caveat that nothing we say here is investment advice, legal advice, or even life advice. Please see choppingblock.xyz for more disclosures. Uh, I should also mention, before we're kicking off the show, Dragonfly, we are investors into Near Protocol. Tarun, are you also an investor into Near? We are. These are okay, cool. So just so that just so that we're all fully disclosed, Ilya and us go way back, and so uh, he's he's a good friend, and uh, we're excited to have him on the show because, in addition to all the crazy news that's been going on, there's been a lot of hype around AI and all the advances in machine learning, large language models, and we wanted to finally get a show to cut through some of the noise with somebody who who knows about this more than almost anybody, especially in the crypto industry. Uh, but we are going to get to that. First, I want to get through some news because it, you know the, the last couple of weeks have been all about this banking crisis that's been going on in the U.S. Things are now winding down, and so we're going to take the first half of the show roughly to just talk about the news, and then we'll jump into a deep dive on AI. So let's update what's happened over the last week that's significant on the crypto side. So the first thing was that uh, Signature Bank uh, was one of the banks that was wound down, and there was this you know kind of a broad discussion within crypto about is Signature being headshot because of its proximity to crypto and its crypto banking activities. So there was a report that FDIC uh, went after it took over uh, the, the auction process for Signature, uh, was requiring bidders to wind down the crypto business. And then, uh, so this, this was reported widely, and then crypto was like, oh my God, it's happening, Operation Choke Point 2.0, it's really true. Um, and then FDIC official denied in a public report that this was the case. They said, look, that's not true. This is a, this is a bank. We want to get the best value for the bank. Uh, so, you know, any activities that are revenue producing, feel free to take them over. Uh, then yesterday, uh, which was Sunday, it was announced that Signature, uh, was, was in a purchase agreement with, um, New York Community Bank. So New York Community Bank, uh, was announced is going to be the buyer for Signature, although the deal is not fully closed yet. And, New York Community Bank is winding down the crypto business. So now, is, was this off instruction of FDIC? 
uh, I think not, not only winding down the crypto business, meaning probably Signet, uh, which is the 24-7 real-time settlement system for Signature, but also they are going to be debanking the crypto clients. So they're going to be asking the crypto clients, take your money, buzz off, go somewhere else. We don't want you here. So one, this, this again begs the question, was this FDIC kind of, you know, nudge, nudge saying, hey, if you want this bank, like get rid of this crypto stuff? Or was this just, you know, in your community bank, just not liking this thing and saying like, look, after Silvergate, I don't want crypto deposit money. It's not worth a headache. And it seems to invite more trouble than it's worth. One way or another, this seems to be an indication that whether it was FDIC directly or whether it was indirectly through the treatment of all the crypto banks and the fact that like, you know, all this stuff is in the news now and you can't help but notice that banks that bank crypto clients get a lot more attention from the regulators than they otherwise would like to, um, that this is causing this kind of uh, this uh, stigma around banking crypto clients that's likely going to continue in the U.S., what were you guys' perspective on this story about about Signature and the debanking of uh, Signature crypto clients? Yeah, I think um, part of it is definitely a narrative that is being I think, propagated in a lot of press outlets with respect to oh, crypto caused these you know these bank runs and crypto caused this banking crisis. And you know, I think there's not a lot of truth to that, but obviously it's a great narrative to tell. Um, I think we'll happen. See what happens with SVB. Obviously, SVB is still looking for a buyer. Um, they weren't a big crypto bank, like you know, crypto is a very small percentage of their business, but um, if whoever buys SVB also winds on their crypto business, th- there might be more to the story, but this feels maybe a bit um, sort of isolated in some ways. So I know there's actually some other big banks that started debanking crypto companies even before SVB's kind of case started. So it's not like that. Me- that message was already there and kind of re- banking regulators, I think, were already propagating that message. So I don't know if it's FDIC itself, but like... I think it's it's already word on the street that crypto banking kind of is risky and people should stay away from it on the, on the banking side. Yeah, so Nick Carter made this point when he was, uh, he wrote this blog post that's gotten, uh, you know, at the time it got some attention now, the, the attention on this blog post has exploded, where he describes this Operation Choke Point 2.0, which is basically this kind of full court press from the executive branch to try to put pressure onto anybody who touches crypto from the banking side. And, you know, it's now really manifesting that we're seeing bank failures. This is a perfect time to, you know, paint crypto as a scapegoat, as, as you said, Tom. What I'm curious about, so one, obviously there are banks that have, are starting to position themselves as being crypto friendly. Obviously, these are mostly smaller banks because, you know, they can afford to take more risk. They're, they're obviously as a small bank, you're more like a startup and you're more willing to like try to do something risky in order to win a big business. So Cross River is, you know, sort of effectively a startup bank that is, that is doing this. Um, and there are a few others that have positioned themselves as crypto friendly. A lot of the banks are in Europe are taking the opposite tack. Europe doesn't seem to be quite as aggressive. Ilya, I mean, I, I know you're based in Europe at the moment. What is what is the vibe you're seeing from the European side with respect to crypto banking? Is this purely a U.S. thing, or is this uh, spreading to Europe as well? Because obviously, with Credit Suisse and all this stuff, obviously Credit Suisse has nothing to do with crypto, but there is a broader banking crisis going on in Europe now as well. Yeah, I mean, I haven't seen anything. On the European side, per se, I mean, Switzerland has been always very welcoming. I think they're even more welcoming right now as this is kind of unfolding. UK is also trying to uh, set up kind of a, a better rules around crypto. They actually, as far as I saw, adding uh, crypto on tax returns explicitly so that, you know... The- I don't know if that's being friendly to crypto so much as wanting your pound of flesh from crypto. As soon as, soon as you put like, you know, if you, if you say, hey, 
you should be paying taxes from this. Like that means like everywhere else, like this is, you know, now is in accounting software. It's in all of the systems. So like now what rates are going to be taxing on, that's, that's the other thing. But I actually think it's like a way to... You're saying that, you know, weed in many US states is the same as crypto in the UK, basically. <laughs> is there tax returns on, on weed? No, now US? they ask you directly and a lot of state filings where it's legal. <laughs> Yeah, I think uh, the UK is finally up to like 2019 IRS rules, which is like when uh, when it changed. Do you think Switzerland's going to continue to actually be positive after this current stuff they have? Yeah, why not? I, I mean, uh, like for them, what's the difference? Well, I just feel like they their banking sector is probably consolidating is probably like means that the smaller banks don't survive. <laughs> and like the smaller banks were the ones just like here that gave a lot of the crypto company stuff like what was that bank seba seba or whatever that did like a lot of the 2017 layer one ico stuff I, i'm just curious yeah. if you think they'll survive because so in 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 switzerland they have an inter- weird system where like there's canton banks which are actually can just like have all their deposits and not lend them and so, and Cantons are really one business. They really want people to come. Like when we were looking for foundation, Canton governments were emailing me, cold, cold emailing me, which was mm-hmm. like, I'm like, what government does that? Fascinating. Well, okay. So amidst this broader banking crisis, there's been one story that's been dominating Twitter. Basically, Twitter just can't stop talking about this, which is uh, our, a good friend of the show, Balaji, who was on the show, uh, I think a, a little while back. Um, so he has made a bet, and his bet uh, is basically a million-dollar bet, or a million-dollar in USD terms. Uh, he's basically betting a million dollars to one Bitcoin that essentially he believes that one Bitcoin is going to go to a million dollars within 90 days, essentially because he believes that the US dollar is going to hyperinflate. So he's claiming very loudly and very aggressively on Twitter that uh, the banks are insolvent, that uh, the bank term funding program which is the sort of you know liquidity injection that uh, the Fed is providing to banks that that need uh, you know uh, that need liquidity on some of their uh, hold to maturity treasuries and and mortgage backed securities. Uh, that this program is pure quantitative easing, and that uh, in this banking crisis, which is going to extend everywhere in the world, all the banks or the majority of the banks are insolvent already. The Fed knew it all along. They're going to hyperinflate the currency in order to you know kind of prop up the dollar system, and that Bitcoin is going to go to basically infinity. Um, or, you know, a million dollars. And so, um, curiously, he's making two of these bets. So he's he's uh, made one already. I think he's going to make another one, or has he already made it? I don't know. Um, but so he's betting, I guess, two million USD uh, that he's putting up against uh, people's, you know, sort of Bitcoin in return. And um, this is, it, it seems uh, a little bit crazy. I've gotten a lot of people hitting me up and being like, hey, what do you think about this Balaji thing? Do you think he's right? Like, should I be worried? Should I like take my money out of the USD? Um, what What's your guys' uh, What's your guys' take on this Balaji end of the world bet? Maybe, maybe many observers have made the same point, but it's a great marketing spend at the very least. You know, Bitcoin's already moved up like ten, 10 plus percent. Is if, it if, great if, marketing if, spend? If he already owns more than you know ten million worth of BTC, which is very likely. He's already sort of EV positive. Um, I think the other thing is that this is the type of thing where it's directionally correct. 
like, yes, there is going to be like, I mean, just look at the overnight banking operations changes um, over the weekend for the all the central banks coordinating to provide liquidity that that's a little bit that's very 2008. Uh, and I think directionally, this is correct. Like there is just like a ton of operation. There are a ton of operations that are basically quantitative using 2.0, 3.0, whatever. I don't know. It depends on how you want to index it. There's a sense in which such a bet will cause, you know, if, if enough people glom onto it, will cause things to move in that direction, even if it's negative EV. And right now, all he's doing is basically recouping costs. But as long as Bitcoin still goes up, you know, 10 to 20 percent, he's fine. Okay, so you take a cynical view that you think that he doesn't actually think Bitcoin's going to a million, but he owns enough Bitcoin that if he can meme a price rally in Bitcoin, which, you know, obviously Bitcoin is rallying, outperforming everything else right now, uh, that it pays for I, itself. I mean, it's not just that it pays for itself. It's also that it's directionally correct. So, like, even if it doesn't hit a million, he's always going to be able to be like, look, banks did hyperinflate. They, even if I, I made the wrong bet, I got the right direction and I just didn't hyperinflate enough. It, it has a little bit of like, I can fall back on that. It's not just like, oh, I got it wrong. Yeah, I got the magnitude wrong. I got the direction right. All right. Yeah, I, I agree with that. I think it's one of those things where, you know, even if you're off by like a few fold, you can still sort of claim victory. It's kind of like people who thought, you know, there's gonna be a million people dead in the US from COVID and like early 2020. I was like, okay, well, like you got, you know, the, the time frame wrong and like the numbers wrong, but like you were sort of right in like ringing the alarm bell. I think that's kind of what he's going for. But yeah, I think I kind of disagree with his, yeah, his interpretation of what's happening with like BTFP and yeah, it, it seems more like, I mean, we're talking about in the show, everybody's talking about it. It's actually very difficult to get that, to get that kind of earned media for like a million dollars. That is very true. Super Bowl ads uh, are a lot more expensive than that. And I don't think they have the reach of this. As much as I think uh, Gabriel Layden was a, who, who found a limit break is a marketing genius on the internet. I'm not sure I would call the seven, five to seven million dollars, whatever, spent on the Digi Daigaku ad on the Super Bowl very good. Whereas this is like the most persistent marketing for a million bucks. Like if you compare it, it's like it's it's unreal how good marketing this has been. Yeah, very 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 fair point. I guess yeah. The 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 issue that I take with it is that like a million dollars is a 60x increase in the bitcoin price right this is not a this is not a direction oh bitcoin went up and now it's worth you know 35 instead of 20 it's like oh you're still off how, by like how many how many claims in marketing are, X. are like we're going to improve your life by 1.5 percent if you buy this product no they're all like we're going to improve your life by 5x if you buy this product <laughs> and this is just the same okay, type but 60, of 60 i i sorry again but 60x is like a it's just a big hurdle yeah, but, you know but, but anything else would not pay, make people pay attention right even if it was exactly. actually 100k if it was 100k people were like yeah it's kind of plausible you know the bitcoin twitter would be like super yeah, excited yeah. you know crypto twitter would be like oh. that's interesting and it would kind of die away Nine hundred ninety nine thousand nine hundred ninety nine would not have memed, right? Like you would not have got the attention, and you would not have got sure, the articles. Sure. Like, like there, there's also yeah. this fact about choosing the number. It's all it's like astrology, like choosing the right number somehow. Like, I guess I matters. resist the like Justin Sun kind of energy that you guys are ascribing to Bology here. <laughs> but, but I think again, uh, it's it's a directional bet, right? Like, it's not ninety days. It's you know two five years. But like it, you know, if if the system doesn't fix itself right, there there's something gonna break. 
It's and a little like, more like MicroStrategy meets Justin's son. <laughs> yeah, it's uh, pe- people. I think it was Matt Levine was saying, you know, if you really think Bitcoin is going to a million dollars, you should probably just buy, spend that million dollars and buy Bitcoin instead of, uh, you know, buying Bitcoin for a million dollars today. Um, but it sort of misses like the reflexivity of Bitcoin as, as a market and sort of almost manifesting like the price increase by sort of putting this idea into people's heads. Like there's a, it's sort of a core reason why you would see that kind of inflows, but you sort of create this meme around it and, and that can sort of uh, self, self manifest. Yeah. I mean, look, it's hard to know if it is like, okay, the counterfactual is hard to tell, right? Obviously at a time when, you know, expectation of interest rates are cratering and banks are failing, like, okay, yeah, that's good for Bitcoin. So th- th- that meme was already happening before Balaji made his bet. So it's hard to tell like how much of a lift was Balaji's bet and the f- earned press, as you guys put it. I mean, it, it does seem like it's having some impact because so many people are messaging me about it that I have to assume this is kind of, you know, uh, it's drilled itself into people's brains that like, hey, maybe you should be worried about this. Um, the interesting thing is that, you know, unlike most of the rallies, all coins are not following. So it's really just Bitcoin breaking way ahead of everything else which maybe lends some credence because most of the rallies we've seen in crypto, especially around interest rates, have been pretty broad, like everything kind of followed together. Now Bitcoin is really breaking away in the market and that maybe, again, it's hard to ascribe uh, something like that and say, oh, well, this is because of this thing. And, you know, like who knows, markets are kind of crazy. So, okay, let's take the this kind of showmanship of the bet aside. What about the claims in the bet? So, you know, one of the things that, that Balaji and a lot of people on Twitter are arguing about right now is whether or not the bank term funding program, which is the, the sort of, you know, the credit line that the Fed is offering to, to banks on their treasuries, um, is it QE? And if it is QE, how stimulative is it? And should we be thinking about this as, hey, the Fed is totally about face, now they're doing QE again, and, you know, like we're basically going back to, uh, you know, the kind of profligate uh, stimulative, stimulative monetary policy that we had for the last you know, 10-ish years. If you ask someone in 2008 if this was the last failure every time there was a failure, they would have said yes, right? There's sort of this like, you're living in the fog of war. You don't really know what's going to happen. Central banks seem to be incompetent at communication right now. I only say that because of like this weekend stuff. I mean, did anyone watch the Credit Suisse press conference? That was a little embarrassing for the Swiss government. I'm not going to lie. That was like, that That did not sound good. Like the media had some pretty hardball questions and, and like the banking officials, whether they were from UBS, Credit Suisse or the Swiss government were just like, yeah, we don't know. It's fine. We'll figure it out. <laughs> like in a very like non-plused way that did not give anyone any confidence. For instance, you know, one of the biggest things people fought about in the U.S. bailout last time was like, oh, do people get paid bonuses or do they get clawed back? And there was a reporter who asked, you know, hey, it seems like you're not like culling pay of any executives, you know, or is that planning on changing it? They're like, no, 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 no. We just agreed on it. We're like never going to change this. And like then there was this huge uproar. And then they were just like, oh, well, maybe we'll change it. And it's like, well, I guess they're making their decisions live at the press conference, you know? <laughs> It it just like it, it didn't really inspire confidence, and so I I think this fog of war thing is also really true. So it's kind of hard to make such strong claims. That's be what I'd say. I mean, I, so with this with this bank term funding program, I think a lot of the assumptions people are making around it, claiming that it's QE and it's kind of you know this broad you know paradigm shift and how central banks are approaching the situation. 
like the, almost all the assumptions I'm seeing about it. So Arthur Hayes had a piece uh, who we, you know we just had on recently where he talked. I think it's called Kaiseki, where he talked about like, hey, this is actually kind of disguised QE, and you know QE's back on, and central banks start printing again. And I think almost every every crypto take that I've seen about this that basically calls it QE is assuming that this program is going to keep rolling over. Um, like the reality is that uh, the difference generally between QE quantitative easing and this bank term funding program is that in, in normal QE, you buy assets from the market. You generally buy toxic assets and you often buy them at a premium and you just hold them on your balance sheet for some uncertain period of time. Like you might uh, you know, hold them to maturity or you might, you know, if they're like other assets, you know, like mortgages or whatever, um, you might just hold them for a while and then eventually sell them back when the market stabilizes, right? But you're basically, you're, you're providing a lot of liquidity to the market and absorbing toxic assets for an uncertain period of time. That is not what the bank term funding program is doing ostensibly, right? In this case, the program is explicitly for one year. It maybe rolls over for two years, but you know, it, it, it's in this program, instead of buying the assets outright, what they're doing is they're allowing you to borrow against it. So they're basically saying like, look, I'm gonna be a pawn shop for you. You've got these toxic assets. I'll let you borrow a lot against it, right? I'll let you borrow it at par, even though the, the market value of these, of these mortgage-backed securities or these treasuries is down. And I'm going to charge you 5%. I mean, basically, I'm going to charge you the prevailing interest rate, right? So this is not cheap. This is not cheap borrowing. But, um, you know, you can you can borrow from the Fed. And, you know, basically, you have a year to, like, kind of tie it over your liquidity needs. And if at the end of a year, like, you can't figure out how to make money or, or satisfy your depository base, you're done. You're, you're not going to make it, right? It's okay. You can argue, like, well, are they really going to let the banks fail a year from now if they didn't let them fail today? Like, what's really the difference? I mean, I would argue a lot of what the Fed wants is no shocks. They don't want shocks. They don't want sudden things to happen. But if these regional banks are just fucked, if they're just horribly mismanaged and they took a lot of risk and, you know, they can't get recapitalized and they need to get bought, then okay, you've got a year to figure that shit out, right? Like the, the, the thing that markets hate is uncertainty and volatility. If you can smooth that volatility, that's kind of the purpose of a central bank is to smooth that volatility and basically say like, hey, let's give people a year to like buy each other, acquire each other, reorganize their assets, make sure that, you know, we don't have like sudden collapses. But if these banks are not viable, they're not viable. And like, I, I don't think the U.S. is is fundamentally committed to never letting another bank fail. Like banks do fail. Like it's not that uncommon for banks to fail. The problem is banks failing at the same time. That's the thing that the Fed doesn't want. Yeah, I uh, I agree with your points with respect to the difference between QT, QE and, and uh, uh, PTFB in terms of like, okay, you know, banks don't actually want to use PTFB unless they have like an immediate, you know, li liquidity constraint. And the nature of and the scope of it is, is pretty limited I think um, something that is somewhat different about, about Bology's argument, too, is that like unlike 08 or maybe even, you know, 100 years ago is the proliferation of, of social media and basically the ability of that to instigate bank runs in a way that is an order of magnitude or two faster and greater than it was back then, um, which you kind of saw with SVB with all these you know group chats and all these you know, people DMing each other and basically within 48 hours, everyone trying to withdraw their cash from the bank. And that basically creating a credible strain and a need for liquidity and thus tapping into BTFP, pushing more dollars into the system. And I think that's kind of where he imagines the uh, uh, hyperinflation coming from. But I also think the hyperinflation thing is a little um, maybe maybe melodramatic. Like I see a lot of crypto people uh, getting excited about the million dollar bet and oh, yeah, you know, fuck the banks, fuck USD. Um, I don't think anyone actually wants to live in a world where the US is undergoing hyperinflation. It would be extremely bad. Everything would go to shit, even if you know, Bitcoin Someone is Someone needs to buy enough Bitcoin to make Bology's EV greater than zero on this bet, right? And those are the people who are buying it. So, 
I, I mean, look, I, I do think that Bitcoin is going to do well, and I think it's plausible that this has, I mean, I think it's obviously uh, th this program is not, uh, it, it's definitely stimulative to some degree, right? Obviously, it's providing more liquidity, um, but it's not, you know, it, it's not pure stimulus in the way that, that QE is. It's more subtle than that. But I think it is going to be good for Bitcoin. And I do take Balaji's point that like probably there's going to be more inflation. Obviously, the Fed has to back off now and interest rates are pricing in that, um, you know, the, the Fed is not going to raise rates all the way to like five and a half or whatever it was originally. They're probably going to back off before the end of the year. And that's going to make it harder to tamp down on inflation. So probably, yeah, inflation is going to be elevated in the U.S. for, for some time. Now, it's, for those of you who don't know, hyperinflation is when you basically get into like a reflexive inflationary loop where inflation just increases and increases and increases, and there's no psychological way to kind of stop the expectation that the money is just going to get debased further and further. So tomorrow it's going to inflate more, and the day after that it's going to inflate more. And so you just want to get your money out as fast as you can, and nobody wants to hold dollars anymore. That kind of event has happened before. You know, it happened in Zimbabwe, it happened in you know Weimar Germany. Happened in Ukraine in the beginning of 90s. It happened in you. <laughs> that's right. I, I remember buying bread for 10,000, 100,000 in a million was in like span of a year. Oh, wow. Nothing like logarithmic scales. It does happen, right? But it happens mostly in failed states. Um, and it happens, you know, maybe once a decade or so, there's like a hyperinflationary event. Uh, the US dollar hyperinflating would be absolutely like just batshit crazy. This is not a prediction you should take lightly as like, oh, you know, the central bank is going to not lower interest or they're going to lower interest rates too fast. So it's going to hyperinflate. This is also why it's very clearly a trade, not a, a real philosophical bet. But, but I think there, there's an interesting question of like confidence of, of dollar, right? Like, the, you know, there's a, maybe like nobody's counting this, but there's like a global confidence in dollar, quote unquote, you know, latent score that like all the outside of US countries are putting confident this is, you know, how much they're indexing their reserves into this, how much of the economy is kind of transacting in it. And is like, is the events that have been happening going to help with this confidence? No, right? So like, it's definitely going to reduce index, which means this assets, like the central banks, the kind of economy, the companies need to go somewhere. And given what we see with other countries, like a lot of them have similar problems, right? And so there's an interesting question of like, yeah, what is the confidence, you know, where, like, let's just say it's not a zero sum, but, you know, that confidence needs to go somewhere. And so that's, I think, what at least, like, if I was Balaji, that's what I would be banking on is like, hey, <laughs> like, here's an asset where you can put confidence in. The rules are known. The supply is known. The, like, you know, a bunch of people already have it. Like, it's, you know, so far still easy to come and go in it. And, you know, if, if a, a lot of people, even put a fraction of their kind of value into it, it's going to actually be like, then hits its reflexive state where people see it going up and they're like, oh, actually we need to go because Palaji said it's going up, right? And so <laughs> like, I mean, there's like a huge reflexivity in crypto in general, right? And obviously, I mean, Bitcoin has like less reflexivity just being bigger, but you know, this kind of kickstarted by like world events. And so the amount of attention right now on this is, is huge. You know, actually, the, the reason I was laughing about this is my my friend who's uh, who's who's at OpenAI and like it's maybe it's a good segue for our, our AI uh, segment. And uh, you know, he's been in AI stuff for like maybe a decade. Okay, so my friends in the SF scene, uh, especially EA people, are actually getting freaked out by the Bology tweets. I literally got that while Ilya was talking. <laughs> 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 so all I have to say is 
amazing marketing, right? There's no way you get a million for a million dollars. You get anywhere near this level of dispersion. That is very true. Yeah, somebody on Twitter said it's like Balaji paid two million dollars to be the main character for next ninety days on the Bluebird app. It's and it uh, seems to be working. I mean, like I, I just think like people who aren't even paying attention to crypto are suddenly like, oh my god, what is this guy saying? <laughs> Okay, well, as long as we are kind of taking sides, let me just register that I don't think the U.S. dollar is going to hyperinflate, but I do think Bitcoin is going to do well over the next ninety days. But uh, but let's let's take that segue and kind of transition over to second part of this conversation, which is about crypto and AI. So obviously, AI has been on the rise. You know, ChatGPT, large language models, diffusion models. Everybody is going nuts now over this idea that AI is is just it's the next massive technology wave. It's a platform. It's deflationary. It's going to change everything. Um, so Ilya, the reason why we brought you on the show is that you are kind of the natural person to talk about the intersection of crypto and AI. So just a quick way of background. So Ilya, you were originally at Google. You were actually working on TensorFlow. And you also were, right before you left Google, you were the, one of the co-authors on a very famous paper in AI uh, called Attention is All You Need, which is the paper that introduced the transformer model, which is the model that is now used to train almost every large model in in AI, it's basically kind of revolutionized, the, you know, basically uh, uh, machine learning at a scale that we've never seen before. Um, and so, originally, before starting Near Protocol, you were starting a company called Near.ai, which was an AI company where you were trying to build a sort of GitHub Copilot type thing back in the day. Obviously, you didn't have the resources that GitHub has. They still own the domain. And pun was very much intended. I'm sure it's going to go for a lot more today than it did at back in '18. Uh, and then at 18, you pivoted into blockchain. And um, we I, I remember uh, the coffee shop where we were initially, initially met and you pitched us on the very, very V0 version of Near Protocol, uh, which was totally broken and made zero sense. Uh, but you guys were, uh, you and, and your co-founder Alex were some of the most brilliant guys that we'd met working in the blockchain space. So I, I'd love if you could um, kind of talk us through what have you seen? So you were at you were at Google basically at the seat of this when we were just starting to turn the corner on a lot of the problems that were seemed to be insuperable back in 2018, 2017, right? People people were excited about, oh, hey, we've got things that like kind of sound vaguely like humans or, you know, uh, all, we, had, we had all these, back in 2018, every single problem in AI, whether it's like, you know, syntax parsing or, uh, you know, uh, understanding natural language or machine translation, there were all these individual models that people were kind of training and fine tuning on individual problems. And basically that is gone. That It's not completely gone, but a lot of it has just been like kind of blown away by the generality of these large language models. Talk us through what was that, what was it like for you seeing that evolution in your time at Google and beyond uh, since you came into the blockchain space? For sure, yeah. So my, my journey in kind of neural networks, deep learning started actually. So I, I was playing with this stuff like when I was in high school and I always thought it was interesting, but it didn't work. Right, like the kind of the neural networks back then were like basically, you know, just a basic classifiers that you can, could not use for much. And then I remember reading a paper, which was Andrew Yang and Jeff Dean training using a, a large at the time GPU cluster inside Google, and they were pre-training model uh, to you know re- look at the image and output image back and kind of create a representation inside. And they found later inspecting it that it had a neuron that would recognize cats. And so that, like, it's kind of called cat neuron back then. And that was like, for me, was the signal that I need to go into this 
So that's when I applied to Google Research and kind of joined the team because th this was kind of the first time you we did not teach machine to recognize anything specific. It wasn't a classifier. It was just for training. And it found something that like relates to human concepts. At the same time, I, I always believe language is like images. There is, you know, thousands of species in the world that can actually like navigate the world, you know, look at things, they have eyes, etc. There's only one species in the world that speaks language. And so I always thought that language is a way to kind of actually train these models and, and get them to actually understand and, and reason and, and make logical uh, conclusions and answer questions with all this. And so that's what I worked on. Now, back then, state of the art was recurrent models. And recurrent models means you kind of one word at a time, pretty much read the sentence and you kind of process it. And so first of all, it's highly inefficient, right? Second, because of kind of the way these models are trained, it's actually a very unstable model and so-called kind of gradients explode when you try to train it. And so it was really hard to train them and even harder to put them in production. There's no recurrent models ever put in production uh, kind of at Google scale because it would take, you know, seconds to like actually query out of it and Google, you know, optimizes for millisecond response time. And so what it would do is we would then take and dumb down these models to just words, independent words without order, and kind of train the dumbed down model that does not know anything about order in a sentence to then output uh, the same prediction and then try to launch that. And we've launched a bunch of stuff like that. Uh, and so then there's the concept of attention came in. And so that actually helped a lot with kind of training these models because it allowed to bypass this recurrence, right? This kind of step-by-step -step evaluation and kind of look back into a sentence, like let's say if you're doing translation, look back into words in the sentence uh, you were translating kind of when you outputting the answer. And so that was the concept of attention. And then there's like a few papers that like tried self-attention as well. And so combining all this, right, we knew that kind of bag of word models were actually kind of okay without order. Self-attention, kind of attention and then self-attention was an interesting concept. Um, and we needed something that's way more efficient, right, to, to train. Uh, this all kind of came came in and uh, Jakob, uh, kind of uh, our manager lead at the time, came to this idea, it's like, well, why don't we try just not kind of putting them in sequence, but just processing all together, but then attending back into the whole sequence and using that to output. And so for machine translation, for example, task uh, outputting that. And so that's what kind of how Transformers started. And, and the idea was, I, I like to describe it for people who watched the movie Arrival. Instead of, you know, like we usually say one word at a time, the aliens were outputting the whole sentence at the same time. And that's, that's what that model learns to do. It's way more efficient and effective, which means you can train it longer and more. Uh, and it's at the same time, kind of the gradients, like the, the actual training methodology is more robust. And so that's what we kind of, we had first prototype and that's where uh, I left and kind of the team continued and gotten like amazing results and published that. But the interesting thing is like that model architecture started to work for everything else, right? They started applying it for images they started applying it for other tasks and it just worked like without changes. Uh, and that's where I think people started like experimenting more and more and, and why it's now I think over 60,000 citations because now everybody's just leveraging that kind of as a basic building block. I was, I was, I was only going to make one comment, which is uh, you said there's only one species that has language, but there are dolphins. 
<laughs> Thank you, Taru. That was very, very useful interjection. <laughs> Sorry, Ilya, go on. Yeah. Um, all right, next, next time we're going to do a dolphin to human language translation model. There you go. Coming up next. All right. Powered by Nier. <laughs> but yeah, I think, the, and then the big change that happened is this idea of pre-training, which, I mean, which existed, like we all pre-trained a lot of models before, but it kind of applied at like a huge scale, pretty much just feeding the whole internet to this model saying like, hey, just predict the next word using this model. And then we can condition you and sample from it, like and kind of try to output what would you, if you had this, seen this prefix would uh, produce. And that's what, you know, this GPT pre-training uh, team kind of and you know started to explode really because at a reasonable scale that model started to actually create representations similar to that cat neuron example started creating representations of world knowledge and being able to make reasoning because it's seen so many times how people reason about things so i remember you know i was following um openai's work from the very very early days when they first you know with gpt2 and then eventually of course gpt3 which is the one that took the world by storm and I remember being absolutely fucking amazed that with unsupervised learning, just basically just feeding lots and lots of text into a model, that it could figure out such a wide variety of tasks that seemed to be incredibly idiosyncratic, right? And so I think a lot of people internalize, there's this great um, essay by Rich Sutton called The Bitter Lesson, where he describes like basically the history of, of machine learning was lots of people trying to solve these individual problems and thinking that the way you solve these individual problems is you, as a human being, as sort of like the, the architect of the AI, you have to encode into that particular AI idiosyncratic features of this problem, right? So like, oh, to understand a face, well, there's like a nose and there's two eyes and there's some symmetry and there's all this other stuff that, that like the, the model needs to know that we know about the world. And it, only if we encode that into the model is it going to get anywhere near the right answer. And that's what a lot of old school machine learning approaches would like embed kind of human, human known features of the problem into the problem. And what we've learned over time, uh, especially within the last like three to four years, is that that just doesn't scale. The thing that scales and gets to like the real state of the art for most problems that we have today, obviously there's like some, you know, extra zhuzh of fine tuning that we do for most of these things. But most of the way that you get to these world scale today is just throw fuckloads of training at it. Just like lots and lots of data, lots and lots of training, lots and lots of money. And if you just do that enough for almost every category of problem that we can think of, the machine figures it out way better than we can. And in a way, like the human, you know, the human kind of symbolic craftsmanship just ends up being actually worse than just raw data input, which seems to, you know, belie an anxiety that a lot of people have now about AI, which is that, okay, now it, it seems more and more that the AIs just kind of need us to sort of like shovel it oil, which is data, right? Like, yeah, there's some fine tuning, there's some extra, okay, maybe we, you know, tweak the, the fucking, you know, training algorithm or whatever. Uh, but for the most part, we just need to generate lots and lots of training data. And the more training data we generate, especially, you know, with the chat GPT and, and uh, reinforcement learning with human feedback, a lot of it is just like the way that these models are getting better and better is like, they already have huge corpuses. They already have all the writing on the internet that we're feeding to it. The big thing is that we just need to train it to like not lie to us, to be kind of friendly, to follow instructions. We like, we have these gigantic, you know, 11 dimensional monsters and we're trying to like use, you know, just raw hours of human training to make it nice and, and be friendly. Um, and so <laughs> more and more I'm seeing this nervousness from people about this new state because it was beautiful 
before this idea that like, oh, we teach it about the nose and we teach it the eyes and then the machine figures it out. And it's like, no, 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 don't tell me anything. Just give me lots and lots of pictures and like, I'll figure it out. I don't really need you. I don't know what your, <laughs> what your perspective is on that. Yeah. I mean, I think that transition was happening for the past 10 years. Like again, that, that paper was in 2013 that like, Hey, you don't need to like handcraft things. Just throw, just like, it's a basic model, right? Back then it was just a convolutional network. Now it's just transformer and it will build representations that it needs to solve its task. And then this representation is actually extremely useful across many, many, many tasks. And so there was, there was this thing, thing embeddings, which still exists actually uh, inside GPD models and everything else, which represents pretty much meaning of the word. It's, you know, like 100, 200 numbers. And these numbers represent meaning of the word. And like people were training the model to get this embeddings and then using this embeddings in a bunch of other tasks. That was like, you know, we were doing that in 15, 16. And it was extremely useful because um, like it would capture lots and lots of different dimensionality of, of our world without like even, you know, us teaching it anything. And then we could use that dimensionality to then decide, oh, is this a city or the person? It can be like, you know, is this some words that mean similar things, et cetera, et cetera. And I think this is just kind of continue expanding, but we should remember this is still tools. This is not a thing that has like a, you know, I want to do this. This is like a tool we give instruction to and it does things for us. And so I think it's important to kind of understand like at, at the, you know, at the base of it, it's a thing that like it ingested all the world knowledge. It has the common sense now. It has some, you know, resemblance of logical reasoning, although not always uh, correct, but it's a tool that we kind of feed the input to produce output. Now it's a really powerful tool and kind of the way people will start using this can be extremely dangerous, right? That's why like, you know, teaching it not to do bad things is good, but like people keep finding ways to kind of go around the teaching, right? And like, you know, they close the one level. Now people like pretend you're someone who is who is pretending that you're someone that uh, doing something, right? And like that, that now jailbreaks kind of the system. So like, it's a tool that, you know, people will be using for things. And so we should look back again at people and how this can be used and what things that people usually do with tools, you know, good or bad, and just magnify that by kind of the abilities of the systems. So I, actually, you, you brought up Sutton before, as he, Sutton's sort of a, a famous author in that he he sort of coined the term to some extent reinforcement learning which uh you know in the 80s <clears throat> but you know one of the reasons i think people missed the sort of like hey we can throw more parameters and we don't it, it'll eventually will figure itself out is that it's not just the idea that we were encoding like hey we need these features that are human interpretable like a nose but it's also that statistical theory still to this day doesn't justify overdetermined systems like this, where it's like, hey, we have way more models than even data points by like orders of magnitude. And there's really no way to know if like you can ever have something that's stable. Like if I throw in one new data point, it doesn't completely destroy the model. But the last sort of 10 years have been a resounding set of examples that, hey, these models are sort of robust in a way that basically none of the existing you know, literature could ever describe correctly. And I think to some extent, maybe the the limits of 
such models that are overdetermined is that you you can't really stop them in the sense of like you can't really figure out how what types of constraints to put to like avoid these types of jailbreak scenarios be, precisely because you're like okay well we're willing to just have like way more directions to search in the model space than there are actual possible queries and so there's always sort of some some way of of getting to whatever out, out, outcome state you want and sort of the opposite philosophy of crypto which is like how do we restrict the number of output states like quite dramatically I mean, uh, what I've seen from OpenAI is that they seem confident that if you just do more, 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 more reinforcement learning, like eventually you will, you will get it to, you know, sort of enclose that output space more and more such that like you kind of find these nooks and crannies that people are exploring by trying to jailbreak the system or get it to like tell you how to hotwire a car or tell it, you know, how to hack a bank or whatever, all these, all these things that people have managed to get ChatGPT and Bing and uh, <laughs> Bing's real name is Sydney. Uh, get Sydney to 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 tell you how to do. And like the reality is that we're at the very infancy of this stuff, and it's only going to get better, right? It's going to get better. It's already gotten better insanely fast, and no doubt that is going to accelerate as people realize the the economic value that is you know going to be unleashed with all these large language models. I think this is where it's interesting to think about. So OpenAI went from, you know, hey, we're going to build it and open source it and everybody can use it to like, hey, we're going to control it because we're afraid of what how people will use it, right? That's really kind of the transition. And, you know, Ilya Sutskever actually mentioned that, like, hey, I was wrong. Like, if you have such a powerful tool, would you really give it out to everyone to uh, leverage? And this is where I think coming from a crypto, you know, blockchain Web3 perspective, and honestly, open source, like I've always been doing open source in my life, like open source always wins. Like there is no so far like products that in, lo in long enough term, open source did not take over. And I think like the only one so far is search. And this may change actually because of these models. And so the, the reality here is, yes, open source will be lagging maybe like one model, like one year of modeling behind. but for anyone who is like following OpenAI footsteps right now, it totally makes sense to open source it because they get so much street cred for doing that. And like, they don't lose anything because like, well, OpenAI has uh, kind of theirs not. And we already see like a bunch of them are open sourced, like a like some of the models you can run on your laptop uh, that like, you know, reasonably powerful, like this obviously not, not near GPT-4 or GPT-3.5, but you know, they, they starting to get there. and the reality is like it doesn't matter what you what OpenAI does to train it. Like there will be models that will be used in all kinds of ways. And did you know, did, did Facebook get street cred? That's my question for you. Yeah, that was a very. I was about to bring that up as well. So Facebook they invented this model called Llama, which is much smaller than in terms of the number of uh, of, of weights than uh, GPT three. Uh, GPT-4, we actually don't know. <laughs> now OpenAI won't even tell us how big the model is. But uh, GPT-3, we know it's, I think, 175 billion parameters. And um, Llama, uh, they release these models that are significantly smaller. The smallest one, I believe, is 7 billion, uh, which is which is you know enough that you can run on your laptop. Can run a and they showed, a mobile actually, phone, mobile phone even. Oh, wow. Oh, I, didn't, I didn't realize Yeah, that. someone has it running so, on a Pixel. Yeah. Oh, wow. Uh, well, they demonstrated that actually if you, instead of like blowing up the size of the model... If you just train the model for longer, actually, you can get a significant increase in performance that approximate a lot of what you get from, you know, something like a GPT-3. Uh, but not only that, there was a more recent paper that came out from Stanford called Alpaca, 
that showed that if you basically use in conjunction the outputs from a bigger, like sort of more robust, better trained language model, you can actually approximate that model really, really well as long as you have kind of a big enough uh, model that you're training on. And so you can sort of imagine like the kind of gigantic blob big brother GPT-4 training this like little llama model running on your on your mobile phone actually can get your mobile phone to really closely approximate the big monster, and, which is like surprisingly cheap. I think they, they said like, you know, roughly on the order of like 100,000 input output examples, which is crazy, which basically means that the edge of having a gigantic model that's like, you're, you know, hidden behind a wall and that, you know, nobody can access and the weights are secret and the size is secret, that actually that moat just might kind of melt away uh, if in fact this kind of, uh, you know, sort of uh, co-optive training can be done at scale because you, you never know when you're talking to somebody, is this person training another model to try to steal my internal knowledge? And that might really change the economics for how these large language models end up interacting with each other. Yeah, so this is actually exactly what we were doing to launch stuff at Google. We were we would take an expensive model and then we would train a way cheaper like bag of words or whatever model just by feeding the input to the bigger model and kind of training uh, the smaller model and output. So like this is like distilling or you know there's few few different terms how to call in that and that's part part of the reason. The other part, yeah, that you just can query out kind of uh, information out of these bigger models even if they are closed. Uh, source. So that's why I'm like, open source will win, right? It's it's like, we'll get this out and, and smaller models can approximate very closely indeed this. So I think the, the, the mode there is, again, it's, it's just like, it's people multiplied by compute, multiplied by data. But I think the, the most interesting mode is actually product. It always was, right? Like at the end, if, if everybody believes ChatGPT is the main thing where you find kind of best state of the art, everybody goes there, everybody talks to it, everybody feeds data to it, that data then kind of improves the models, like that becomes kind of still ahead of everything else because they just don't get this flow. And that's, and that's what Google been. Google been not compared to Bing and other search engines because it became kind of state of, like state of the art, like people kept feeding it, you know, queries and clicks. And this queries and clicks then fed back into improving the model. And so there, there was no way to kind of turn that around Again, unless you completely change how this thing is in, kind of interacting. And so I think the interesting mode OpenAI has is in product land, not in like model architecture or, or purely like data. Like it's, it's in this feedback loop that they now built. Okay, so I think there's a good place for us to bring it back to crypto. So obviously AI is huge. Everybody's thinking about it. And so naturally, given how hype-driven crypto is, there's a lot of people who are now trying to take the two and mash them together and see what, you know, is there some is there something that we can do with crypto or blockchains to enable AI? <laughs> to be fair, to be fair, every cycle has had a lot of oh yes, non-reputable scam versions of this. But I I, I think we're we're our goal in this conversation is to focus on the actual real ones, not the marketing. Just as a disclaimer yes. to anyone yes. who if, is if listening, who is like, "Oh, you missed AI coin," and it's like, "Well, AI coins get repo is null." So, <laughs> okay. Well, so there there are a few threads that I think we keep coming back to, and and to be clear, this you know this this isn't just with the advent of you know uh, ChatGPT and these large language models. I remember when I first started getting into crypto investing in the 2017-2018 cycle, there were also a bunch of AI hype driven blah 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 you know type blockchain projects. But I, I think we keep coming back to a few core ideas. And, and Ilya, I want to get your take on 
you know, what, what you think about the intersection of crypto and uh, machine learning. So the three years in particular, I think that are the most, they get the most attention. The first one is sort of private machine learning, uh, whether it's like using zero knowledge or fully homework encryption or multi-party computation, one way or another, finding a way to make machine learning training uh, happen in a way that is privacy preserving. The second is decentralized training. So obviously, you know, you've got the, the, all these companies spending huge amounts of money on training these models. Is there a way to decentralize that and do a kind of peer-to-peer, -peer, you know, folding at home kind of thing? Uh, and then the third is, what if you just put the fucking model on chain and you do inference on chain, which obviously is, you know, you, 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 want, you wouldn't want to do training on chain because training is super expensive, but inference is somewhat cheaper. So does it make sense to just put models on chain and, you know, query them that way? Which of these approaches do you think are the most interesting and why? Walk us, walk us through them if you can. So let, let's start maybe with the, car, the current state, right? So the current state is these models are trained on supercomputers, which are built out of a purpose-built hardware, which is called NVIDIA A100s, and there's a new version, which is H100, or TPUs at Google, or there's like a few other, like Trainium and, and a few others uh, in, in other organizations. But kind of generally speaking, this is like when it, when it says NVIDIA GPU, that it's not the GPU you have in your, you know, play a game box uh, to render graphics. It's especially designed for uh, for AI training uh, GPUs. They cost $30,000. So you usually use about a, like for GPT-3-ish model, you would use a thousand of them for three months. So this is about a million dollars worth of kind of cost to train a model like that. So there's not that many like kind of companies right now that can afford this. And so this GPUs, a thousand of them are interlinked with uh, kind of very high speed connectivity. And when I say very high speed, this is like uh, six, 700 gigabytes per second. This is faster than bet connectivity between the GPU itself and the local RAM, like the memory on the computer itself by like, or like almost order of magnitude. So it's literally easier to send data to another GPU than to sit and like recompute something later than to save things and load it back. So that's the current state of how these models are trained. And so when somebody says like, hey, let's do decentralized training uh, on like a network that, you know, barely maybe can push like one megabyte, one megabyte per second. And we're talking about, you know, seven, 800 gigabyte per second. Uh, we we're way, way more, you know, orders of magnitude away from this actually happening, right? And plus, like, people generally don't have this kind of hardware. Uh, people have, you know, let's say people have leftovers from the GPU mining that we're doing for Ethereum. Well, that's like, you know, or orders, again, of magnitude far away from what usually these chips uh, are used right now. So can you do decentralized training with the current setup, with the current training? The answer is nothing closely to what you need to train any of these models like for real right and again we're talking about let's say again gpt3 because we know the parameters 175 billion parameters right you need you know i think like 20 20 30 gpus 32 gigs of ram uh, each to just like store that model in, in on this thing right and then being able to pass through it so like that's just like coordinating that, making that is just so not, so not effective. And so anybody who is doing this like really right now will not be using anything. They, they, like, they don't even want to use custom hardware that doesn't work with either XLA or uh, NVIDIA, 
right now because if you're betting on custom hardware or custom setup that's not kind of in the common it's just something that like nobody who's right now rushing to build better models and kind of outcompete each other will be doing because like they, they're willing to spend more money even if like if it's to, to just be in the same kind of setup that is like reproducible and, and doesn't have risks so i think that's probably the main like when everybody's like hey let's do decentralized training let's do private training similarly right well private training is done either on secure enclaves which don't have any accelerator accelerators mpc possible but like you know you you're adding a huge uh kind of overhead on just like you know computing parts aggregating like it's it's going to be probably you know 10 to 100 times lower and you still need the same level of compute right you'll still need uh, and and like synchronizing between between different clouds, for example, will be huge. So I think at the end, where I think was you know if we call decentralized training, what does make sense right now is this marketplace of hardware itself of the supercomputers is completely closed. Like if if I want to train something and I do have a million dollars, I need to call up Amazon, I need to call up Microsoft, and I need to call up Google, maybe like a few other organizations, and negotiate with them a rate, right? And so. I think the where you know what blockchain is really good at is opening up marketplaces. And so what we can do is opening up marketplaces of supercomputers so you can kind of have a better price discovery on where is the supercomputer and and having better resource allocation like that you know kind of auctioning off this compute around the world where people are building these clusters. But but like you said, you know the the kinds of uh GPUs we sort of you know GPUs in name only the kind of GPUs that you use to train these models are not consumer GPUs, right? These are not things that people running a node at home are going to have. And you cannot actually buy them. So you need to be a large bulk buyer. I think you need to like, I don't, I don't actually know what's a minimum buy, but like NVIDIA will not sell you like, can I buy a, a couple? We can back estimate this based on the fundraise sizes of like Adept and Topic, right? <laughs> like so, so like I, I don't Adept, think I, I don't think they actually bought their own hardware though. So I, some I of them claim one, they will. <laughs> I, only, so you I only know one startup that has access to this. Like everybody else is like literally, you need to be a cloud, like a billion dollar cloud level to buy this. I know only Lambda, uh, which uh, is able to buy them from Nvidia, and they've been. They've been doing this, like I've, I've known them doing this, buying GPUs for past like almost 10 years. That's why they probably have the access. I, I, I will say that um, having seen a bunch of these fundraising decks between Stable Diffusion and Adept, 90% of their fundraising decks said like 80% of our funding is going to build our own clusters. So, and they, they actually are really trying to convince people right now. So I, I, what I'm saying is like NVIDIA is not going to, be like oh yeah like this like billion dollars of money raised we can't sell to that i think they're just going to probably charge them more and it's pretty clear they're going to charge them a lot more but my guess is the minimum order size is 100 million roughly based on the probably yeah and you, and remember that it's like you buy gpus and you need to buy all the other stuff like there's networking stuff for sure yeah, yeah yeah like yeah it's, I, I agree. I mean, I mean the, uh, the 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 like SLI InfiniBand stuff itself is probably as much as the GPUs, but yeah. And you need engineers who then can like maintain all that. Okay. So all right. So TLDR, any kind of anything that's going to be an impediment to training, either one like you don't have the money, or two like the 
even the, the, the kind of machines you would need to train in a decentralized way are so expensive. Very few people have access to them. So I think blockchains work well when you're coordinating resources that lots and lots of people have and you know, the, the, the distribution of these resources are very decentralized. This is not the case for like, you know, A100s from NVIDIA. Very few people have them. And so, you know, you don't need a blockchain to coordinate them. Just go call up like the three big cloud guys and they're the ones who have all it, these. It won't, it won't stay that way though. Like there's no doubt that someone will actually try to break the monopoly here. And obviously AMD has tried and has failed so far. But I, I, I think like there's, there's going to be, there's going to be a day that like, some of these other accelerators are good enough and they're cheaper. Right, but it, it, it's hard to imagine that it's not going to be the case that the most cost-effective, right, like the most kind of energy-efficient and cost-efficient approaches to training are going to be basically gate-kept by the people who have the economies of scale. But maybe not for them. these distilled models, right? If you're bootstrapping off of just like training a smaller model off the open AI, AI API. True, true, true. Yeah, so if, if we're talking about smaller models, yeah, it's totally a different story, right? And I mean, you can potentially get like a and you know a server with few GPUs, kind of consumer grade, and and train it. So and people doing that, right? Like researchers. Yeah. So the day that you have a model on your phone that approximates one of these large language models fairly well, and you can do fine tuning of that model through some cloud GPUs that maybe you know are not quite uh, you know sort of state of the art grade. Is that a case where you think that, okay, in this kind of situation, you can imagine having some kind of GPU marketplace and maybe, you know, there's enough, there's enough demand there for this kind of consumer level fine tuning of these kind of miniature models that the economics can work. What's your take? I think the question is like, if, if it's enough to have like few GPUs, right, getting them off the cloud is actually pretty easy uh, or getting like a buying a server with like, you know, four GPUs plugged in like kind of what's the reasoning, right? It's not, it's not that you need it, generally speaking, uh, to be decentralized. And so mm. if it's a rentable resource and there'll be a ton of demand and clouds are not able to satisfy that demand, that's when it will can start spilling over and like people buying this, you know, maybe servers can offer it for rent. But that, that means like, you know, clouds need to really like not satisfy the demand or start censoring someone from using it, right? Like that's, that's the only reasons why this kind of would start, this movement would start. Sure. I was gonna say, I think, uh, I mean, talking about, about the compute marketplaces and obviously decentralized compute, verifiable, verifiable compute has been like kind of a part of, it's been a meme in crypto for a long time. <laughs> um, but the other meme, right, has been um, owning your own data and data permissioning and, and, you know, data marketplaces. And like, I feel like that's been the other point of contention or, or sort of debate with these LLMs is, you know, they're ingesting you know, images and text from, from the internet, you know, training, training these models on them. And, you know, specifically for like diffusion models and, and uh, in, you know, image output, artists feel maybe deceived or hurt that like their work is then being trained to uh, uh, use to train these models um, that they don't really see any, any benefit from. I believe Getty Images is actually suing um, OpenAI or Stable Diffusion uh, for basically training their models um, on Getty Images, um, even though they're not necessarily like licensed to do that. I'm, I'm curious to get your thoughts on like, you know, sort of this, this again, this crypto meme of like owning your own data making people pay you or advertisers pay you to actually access your data and, and, and train on it. You know, is there sort of an, a new uh, life to this, this idea, you know, with sort of the rise of LLMs or is it just, still just kind of impossible to actually do this in practice? Obviously being like being a, on the crypto side, I want this to work. Right. But practically speaking, we still don't have tooling to do that. Right. And so I, I also think, I think it's less uh, stability yeah, that took out whatever that content was, trained the models and they were pretty much, 
kind of same quality. And so uh, generally speaking, it's, it's like un, un, unless we actually flip the script and actually start creating provenance for all the content we create that is cryptographic, that is potentially also enforced by law that you need to kind of have include provenance as you kind of process this content further, like we will not be able to, you know, just like by the, by the current systems, we'll not be able to use uh, this data and if data belongs to, to users and with this limited, I would say, law in, kind of re regulatory in, enforcement. So I think this goes back into like, what we need to start doing is that the content that we produce, and I mean, AI as well, but especially uh, humans produced needs to be cryptographically authenticated. It needs to have provenance and needs to be leveraged. And, and I think this actually will become an even bigger problem uh, because th these models are kind of effective tools to create insane amount of content, right? Um, and so one of the kind of core issues is that all of the kind of societal systems actually run on language, right? They run on language, the, you know, you file things with language, you, you know, you read news, you, you look at like what candidate, you know, their platform is, you know, or, or video of that. And so like all of the systems are highly kind of susceptible already to manipulation, right? Like you don't need AI to manipulate them. People manipulate them all the time. AI just gives you this extreme kind of leverage to, to create this. And so like you can be reading a book, which is literally has all the same characters and all the same kind of overall story and completely different narratives. Like, and you will not even know that, right? Like you can be going to, you know, this website and, and like seeing the same titles, the same author, the same everything and completely different narrative. And so like that's already possible to do now to kind of create this deceptive content. So we need authentication path for everything. Otherwise, we're going to actually live in this like everybody will see a its own version of reality that's completely different from what you think you're putting out. So, you know, interestingly, um, I, I remember when when GPT-3 first came out and certainly ChatGPT, people started really worrying like, oh, my God, how will we ever know that a human being wrote something? And then, you know, with, with stable diffusion, it's like, oh, how will we ever trust an image ever again? And, you know, and, and obviously this is going to, when we have good video models as well, people are going to say this about videos is, you know, how do I know that's, you know, Barack Obama making out with Mitt Romney or whatever, you know, how do I know that's real? And um, I, I think a lot of these things are a little bit, a little bit of an overreaction, right? Like we've had Photoshop now for like 20 years and things are fine. We kind of, you know, like obviously Photoshop does affect uh, things and, and, you know, fake media does end up getting, uh, going viral sometimes. But, uh, for the most part, like human, like, it's not like civilization has collapsed because Photoshop exists, right? We, we find ways to, you know, figure out chains of, of provenance and authentication of what's real and what's not. And I think we're, we're going to adapt like, cause that's what, that's what society does. Society adapts to technology period. Every, every time it does. That being said, I do agree with you that we do need to have better authentication of raw inputs that come into society, right? So one of the things that, um, uh, one of the most obvious things is, you know, how will we know that a an image that comes from a camera uh, is actually a raw image from a camera and has not been uh, manipulated, right? And so if you have some kind of physically unforgeable signature from, you know, the camera itself that verifies that this image was taken from a camera and maybe there's a small number of transformations that were applied to this that are not, you know, manipulative is, you know, the color was tuned or it was cropped in such and such way. Uh, like already, I think we're starting to see hardware that 
can come, you know, I'm sure that we're going to see this with video as well as, as just cameras and, and audio as well. You can verify this thing came from the real world and it was physically produced and we, and we can have some certainty of that. And maybe someday your browser, when you right click on something, it'll show you like, ah, yes, this thing came from a, you know, a Nikon D7, blah, 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 whatever on such and such date. That I think is the path that this stuff has to go in order to co-evolve with the speed at which um, you know, uh, uh, generated content is going to compete with real content. And, and I think it, it's, it's plausible that blockchain crypto is going to have some role to play in how that information gets authenticated, stored, tracked, et cetera. Or maybe it'd be way simpler than that. Maybe there's, you know, you just hit the Nikon API and, you know, your, your, your browser just knows like the Nikon keys or yeah, I don't know, something like that. Um, what, what's your, what's your take on this question of like physically verifiable data? Yeah. So I think some cameras already do that. Like there's a secure enclave that signs uh, photos on some cameras. I think like Sony added that and like a few others. And there's like actually it's, you know, a metadata on Nikon and everything. Um, I think similarly needs to happen for, you know, let's say, you know, we record this video, like we, we should all co-sign on it that indeed this is a video <laughs> that we produced and we talked about, right? Uh, so things like that, we kind of need to make this a, almost like a, a new normal, a new habit. And I, but I totally agree. Like we will adapt. This is not like we have all the tools. We, it's not like an unsolvable problem. We just need to do it. And I think the kind of the, the more things that will be breaking, the more we'll be fixing, the, the faster we'll be fixing them. So and kind of introducing new habits around us uh, where, again, like, you know, our our identities are, you know, have cryptographic information. And so you can like co-sign directly on the YouTube that like, Hey, yeah, you know, yes, I recorded this video or like I participated in this video or this quote is mine on, on a, inside a newspaper article. Right. And so that kind of creates this like prominences that then browsers show robustly. I think the the important part though, that some people were like, Oh, you know, we should enforce fingerprinting in the output of the AI models. I think that part is like, you know, just not going to happen. Like people will all like people will always go and remove that fingerprint in the code and just <laughs> do it without. And so, I think authenticating content at the source, yeah, is the right way to do it. Okay, so we, we've talked about the things at the intersection of crypto and AI that maybe don't work or are not likely to work anytime soon. What are you bullish on at the intersection of crypto and AI? What do you think is going to work? So I can say one thing that's been working is data collection. So. Data collection in general, right, is a how to get a lot of people to contribute data for some income, some reward, right? And this is literally what you know blockchains are really good at: coordinating a bunch of people doing some work. Uh, one one may call it proof of work. Uh, and uh, so, actually, on near there's been near crowd a community built project which has been running for the past two years, uh, where one to two thousand people every day has been working and uh, labeling data, like various tasks and creating like a massive data set from that. So that part is, I think, very, very straightforward. It's like fits, uh, you know, it's micropayments and kind of coordinating people, kind of a marketplace of tasks and, and people. And so that, that works really well. And I think that kind of continues scale and like used in more different ways because you can introduce that as part of some experience, right? You can introduce like, because uh, as Tom mentioned, right, data has value. And so, like, as people do something, they can receive reward for that data then flowing back into the model. But then it does need to be, like, fully authenticated and kind of on-chain for that to happen. So I think that that works. 
I think there's interesting examples of like this model that can run on your device. Uh, so like more on edge computing that are applied to your data. And so that, that will be interesting kind of, again, more in, in the conceptual web three, not like specifically crypto world is, uh, starting to have like a personalized model that like fine tuned on your stuff without leaving this. And like for that, you don't actually need that much computer, right? You probably don't have, you know, millions of data points anyway. So you just kind of, uh, run a few uh, back props on that. I think there's interesting question that like I'm always been excited and that's why we were doing near AI is on coding. There's an interesting intersection of like decentralized data, right? Data that belongs to users, decentralized services, meaning they're like open accessible, they, you know, they don't going to disappear and Coding, which, you know, if we think of this like end user coding where they're not going to probably build like complex stuff, but they can mix kind of by describing what they want, they can mix existing services and existing data. And it's really hard to do that in Web2 because the services are closed. You know, they're like APIs are not always known. The source code is closed, like all of those things. Here in Web3, we actually have everything open. And so saying like, hey, can you build me a front end that you know, combines Aave, Compound, and Uniswap and, like, creates me a 10x leverage, right? That's actually, like, possible now to do because, like, the smart contracts are public and all the services, like, you know, to pull data are public. And so it can, like, create that front end for the user at the moment pretty much kind of in a custom way. And, like, I'm really excited about that. That kind of is a vision of what we were uh, trying to do originally. And I think that that kind of going to attract a lot more attention as well to how people you know, interact with services because now there's like UI problems may disappear or like maybe reduced as well. So I, I really like that. And it augments a lot of the way that I view the intersection of crypto and AI, which is that um, they may not, like the way that crypto and AI intersect, in my view, is probably not going to be that there are going to be large tokens that you can invest in that are going to make a lot of money that are the AI tokens and those are going to pump, right? Obviously there is, right now there are a lot of AI tokens that are pumping as you know, the, the AI trend is, is getting more and more exciting. But I, I think the two are interlinked in more subtle ways. Um, so one of the examples you mentioned is just the fact that, okay, obviously as code generation and AI has become better at writing code and building front ends, that's obviously going to be good for crypto because crypto will have better front ends and the, you know, the programming will, be get, will become more efficient and cheaper. And, you know, eventually you're going to have, I mean, already there have been examples of chat GPT sort of quote unquote auditing code and finding, you know, uh, common vulnerabilities. So I think all these things are accretive, right? They, they sort of make human beings better and making human beings better makes blockchains better because blockchains are made today by human beings. I do think, I wrote a tweet storm about this a little while ago. One of my theses about the intersection of crypto and AI is I think a little bit more uh, forward looking, which is that you know today, I think you mentioned this earlier, Ilya, is that most of these models, are, almost all of them that we're interacting with, like the large language models, we sort of make them kind of look and feel like people. Um, but it's a bit of a sleight of hand, right? These are not actually agents. They don't have any kind of persistent preferences or desires or anything like that. Uh, we sort of make them pretend to because that's what human beings like. Uh, but eventually we are going to have more agentic models that have long-term memory that are going to be you know, goal-directed and are going to try to be doing things in the world. And when we have those kinds of AIs, and they're so far away, I think, to have them realistically beyond just like video game environments. Um, when we have those kinds of AIs, I think you know those AIs are going to want to solve problems that involve shared resources. And we know how to solve problems that involve shared resources. We use money. 
Money is the way that we negotiate access to shared resources, whether it's a, you know, whether it's a message bus, whether it's a, you know, uh, whether it's, you know, turning into a lane, whether it's asking somebody to do something for you that's easier for them than it is for you. The way we solve all those problems, a huge category of problems is with money. And so AIs are going to want to use money, uh, but they're not going to be able to use fiat money because, you know, Chase is not going to open a bank account for an AI. They won't even open a bank account for a crypto startup. So they're definitely not going to do one for an AI. Um, but the, the fastest way to get onboarded onto money is just by owning a private key. If you can manipulate a private key, which you know, pretty much any AI can figure out how to rent a, you know, if you can rent a cloud GPU and stick the key in an enclave and then give it instructions, boom, now all of a sudden you can use money just like everybody else. And you can coordinate with other AIs. You can, you know, get an AI to work for you. You can end up employing somebody else to work for an AI or an AI-driven organization. And so I think the, the ways in which these two things are going to intersect, I think is not that, okay, there's like some big, maybe there, there could be some applications certainly that are going to be blockchain uh, accelerated, right? Like, you know, potentially decentralized labeling and uh, this, you know, uh, maybe generating training sets. But the biggest thing is going to be that AIs are going to want to use money and they're going to use crypto because it's just faster. It's easier. It's, it's digitally native. Um, and that I think is going to be an accelerant, maybe in a scary way for how these AIs suddenly start interacting with us in the world. And so you can imagine someday, instead of Bology making this crazy bet, it's going to be like some very poorly calibrated AI that's making bets on Twitter. There's a very famous uh, crypto investor who I won't say who it is, but they, the, uh, one of the first times I met them, I remember they told me their vision of the future in 2016 or 2017, which was um, you know, the world's richest entity in 50 years will be a broken Tesla because a Tesla that's broken and can't be used to 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 be a cab will have to train itself because it'll have all these GPUs on board to basically become an investor because it like can't do its normal what? function as like a Tesla, and then it becomes the world's greatest uh, investor <laughs> on its own. Uh, trust me, I was like, what? I, wait, wait, I did wait, wait. not. What? What? Yes. Who? Who? Yes. who wait, this was an investor who told you this is their thesis. A, a, a famous crypto investor that you everyone in this. This uh, call knows. I know who it is. Tesla. Wait, is this is <laughs> this Kyle? Proxy? Tell me, this is Kyle. I don't. I don't think no, we should disclose on the, on the call. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. But right. uh, but but it, 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 it was that 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 sort of matches what you just said for the record a little bit. Uh, I don't know if I'd say that matches. <laughs> I wouldn't endorse that particular thesis that we're all going to get beaten by uh, in our investing prowess by a broken Tesla. But uh, you know, but, I've but, been but, I've been proven wrong before. But I think the the general idea that blockchain is a place for autonomous agents to pretty much interact with each other and, and the world in general is true, and and we actually actively building more and more ways for them to do that. And I mean, there there's already agents interacting, right? They're just very basic. Like maybe they don't they use basic machine learning to you know predict prices for arbitrage and you know do a few other things. But like as there's more and more externalities for the blockchains and there's more and more ways uh, to do this, right? I mean, imagine a very simple uh, system where the model indeed is trying to, you know, beat the uh, the market uh, by investing. You give it a thousand dollars and you give it a, a access to also like ask people to do stuff again on chain, which exists. You know, there's like a job market on chain. And so now it can like decide, you know, buy buy a crypto coin, you know, sell a crypto coin, or ask a you know humans to do something. And so 
it may start like invest and may start to actually suggest people to start its own project that it's going to pump, you know, by posting stuff on decentralized social media. That's, that's actually possible now. No, I, what'll actually happen is this broken Tesla starts doing NFT scams. That is, that is absolutely how this broken Tesla is going to end up making yeah. all this money. Yeah, generated generates NFTs with Mid Journey, and then <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. But, but anyway, but this is like this is this is totally possible now. This is like this is not science fiction. This is possible now. Yeah, interesting. Well, it's, but the question is like who who put it together to do that, right? Like at the end, it still was a will of someone. I'm waiting for someone to make broken Tesla capital, which is their entire thesis. <laughs> their entire thesis is we're investing in the future of of the broken Tesla that that eventually becomes the world's greatest investor. I feel like next now next bridge hack I see, I'm gonna be like, shit, was this a broken Tesla that hacked this bridge? All right, I think we're we're at time, so we have to wrap. Ilya, thank you so much for sharing your your font of wisdom with us. Uh, I hope that. Uh, Next time we're having this conversation, we can just generate you and, and we don't have to bother you out of your day. But um, for now, we appreciate you showing up in person. That's Thanks it, everybody. Writing. Thanks, everyone. Thanks. See ya.